Now, as you know, we are in the last part, the seventh part of a series on the book of 1 Peter that uh, we have called Scattered. And we are still, as we were at the beginning, seven weeks ago, we're still in the midst of a worldwide viral pandemic. And we have seen, as I mentioned, a few restrictions released or loosened at least, but our new normal continues to look not very normal at all. Social distancing is still in force and we're all staying six feet apart and we're not uh, touching or hugging or holding hands or shaking hands and not laying on of hands like we do when we pray in the apostolic church. And it seems like that would be kind of minor, but it's not minor when it infringes on your life and also when we draw such strength from each other through our interactions, it's actually quite a major imposition. Uh, we're part of a church family. We love to act like a family, the family of God. So right now, we, we feel quite separated one from another, that's for sure. And we even feel scattered, just like these brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago. And so one final time, we dive in. Uh, we're going to talk about the last chapter of this epistle tonight. But I draw your attention to the very first verse of the very first chapter. That's what gives us our series title. A Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the day of Pentecost preacher himself, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all of the provinces of Asia Minor, these believers are scattered throughout that landmass. They have no opportunity for the close fellowship that we would normally be enjoying here in our nation. And I will remind us one final time, although we feel very inconvenienced and very infringed upon, uh, even with social distancing in place in our lives, we still probably are closer in many ways than they had the opportunity to be. We have Facebook and FaceTime. We have Zoom calls and we have email and we have telephone. We've got all kinds of perks and privileges. They lived in a world without modern travel, without social media. So really their connection as believers in the first century was only through letters like this one that made their way from group to group to group and brought words of encouragement. And we've been studying this book now for six weeks. This is our seventh part. And thus far in his epistle, Peter has been warning these people. More difficulties are on the horizon. More trials may interrupt your everyday lives. And even persecution might happen, may happen, probably will happen to the children of God. Because after all, the world and the devil are not happy at all that we are serving Jesus Christ. Times of opposition, confusion, and persecution demand that God's people have adequate spiritual leadership. Unprecedented times for the church in any generation require anointed pastors and leaders to provide direction and protection, challenge and comfort, correction and covering to God's precious people. And that's why you need to pray for your pastors during this pandemic. If you're watching this video and you're part of another church other than CCC, I say to you emphatically as well, you need to pray for your pastors during this pandemic because they've never led the church in modern times through a pandemic before. So you might even disagree with some of their decisions, but don't you fail to pray for them. Yes, they are responsible to pray 
for you. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. That's Samuel's pastor's heart talking. And that's a very important scripture. Pastors are responsible to pray for those that are under their care, under their charge. But please remember that just as pastors are responsible to pray for you, you are responsible to pray for them. Paul said this to Timothy, I exhort therefore that first of all, of first top priority, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, for all that are in authority, that's your pastor in your life, your spiritual authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So you are responsible to pray for your pastor just as your pastor is responsible to pray for you. Please don't fail in that uh, very important, very critical responsibility. Because spiritual leadership is so very important in the lives of God's people and even more in the times of crisis, Peter now in this epistle, as we pick it up at the beginning of chapter 5, he now turns his attention to the elders, the leaders in all of these scattered assemblies. Here's what he says. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. We see from uh, our study of the New Testament that New Testament congregations, New Testament assemblies, they had organized and recognized spiritual leadership in every church. This modern idea of a free agent Christian who has no accountability to a pastor, no accountability to a local church, that's just not a biblical idea at all. The New Testament recognizes leaders. The New Testament had an organized structure of leadership. And the New Testament uses these designations for those who lead the local church. Basically four terms. The first term is pastor. The Greek word there is poimen, and it, it, it means someone who is a shepherd. They care for the sheep. The second word that we see in the leadership structure of the New Testament is bishop or episkopos. And that has the significance of someone who oversees the work of God. And then we have a third word. This was part of the leadership structure of the New Testament, elder or presbyteros. And, and that is, is, has the significance of a mature leader, someone who's looked upon as having spiritual maturity and the capability to lead. And then finally, uh, the word deacon. Deacons were part of the leadership structure of the New Testament church. The Greek word is diakonos, and this word has the significance of being a servant to the work of God. Now, if you read the epistles you'll find that the qualifications, this is very important, the qualifications for these offices are very, very similar. Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3. The qualifications, whether it's pastor, bishop, elder, deacon, the qualifications are extremely similar. And so all of these offices refer to people who have spiritual wisdom and spiritual experience to lead the church. Not necessarily age, but spiritual maturity. So these terms primarily refer to spiritual 
responsibility, not just titles. It's not just the title of a pastor. It's the responsibility of a pastor. It's not just the title of a bishop or an elder or a deacon. It's the spiritual responsibility that comes with those words. They're not just titles or positions in the New Testament church. In Peter's day, the church, as we've seen in this epistle, the believers scattered they had to meet in multiple locations in every city. They didn't own buildings. They didn't have large church buildings to meet in. So they're part of homes and different places where they meet. But all of those different meetings in any local city or area, they were all considered to be part of the church in that city. So every church, because they were meeting in different locations, of course they had multiple leaders. Today, we would compare that to the pastoral team of any congregation. In the second century, things began to change, and the term bishop came to be used for a senior leader of the mother church in that city or in that region. And that's why today, our terminology sometimes has adapted over the centuries. Sometimes today, we use the title bishop uh, unofficially for an organizational leader or for a minister who leads other ministers. So we use these terms slightly differently in the 21st century than they use them in the first century. However, the point that is so important is that these roles, each and every one of them, they don't speak of a position or a title or an office. They speak of a spiritual responsibility and a mature leader who can help lead the church. Now, Peter, of course, he's concerned that the leaders in these local churches should be at their very best because when fiery trials come, as he talked about in the last chapter, when fiery trials come, the saints of God always look to leadership for encouragement and for direction. Now, today we have man-made mechanisms in place like voting on a pastor. And so saints today, they can elect a leader through a man-made mechanism. And that's okay. We're a democratic society. But although saints can elect a leader through man-made mechanism, only God's anointing, confidence in that leader's giftings, and trust in that leader's character will ever cause saints to submit themselves to a leader. And all of those things, God's anointing, Confidence in a leader's giftings, trust in a leader's character, all of those things are only observed and proven over time. Now, as Peter's addressing these leaders, he acknowledges that he himself is a leader. But notice that he doesn't address himself as an apostle. He simply says, I'm also an elder. To him, he's part of the team that is leading the church here at CCC, I hope you're very thankful every day of your life that we have a wonderful team that leads this church. It's not a one-man show. We have a wonderful pastoral team and an incredible leadership team. So while Peter doesn't distinguish himself in that way, he just says, I'm another elder like you. He does mention that he personally witnessed Christ's sufferings. And that does set him apart as one of the initial apostles of the church age. That's in contrast to people who would be in the role of an apostle today. That Greek word for witness gives us our English word martyr. 
And of course, a martyr is one who literally lays down their life for Christ. And Peter did that. But here he's not using the word in that sense, one who dies for the, the name of the Lord. Here he's using it in the sense of a witness who can share what he has seen, share what he has heard, and share what he has experienced personally. That's the sense in which Peter means this. While he witnessed Christ's sufferings, and while he was a witness in his own life to his own sufferings here on earth, he says, I'm also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. I'm not only going to witness suffering here, I'm going to witness glory over there. And that is what makes all of our sufferings worthwhile. And so Peter actually stops up in this letter and he begins to address the leaders. Since these leaders in these church assemblies, in these homes, these scattered groups of believers, since these leaders would be the ones who received Peter's epistle, and they'd be also the ones who would share his teaching with the church, he stops to give them some very special instructions. The qualifications that Peter is about to mention here are vitally important for spiritual leadership of any kind in any generation. Here's what he says. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And so notice Peter's qualifications for leaders. And I add again, for leaders in any generation and in any position and in any spiritual role of leadership in any assembly in any generation. Number one, feed the flock. Pastors have to cultivate a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And then what they're responsible to do is share what Jesus teaches them from his word and through prayer to share that with the church. If leaders aren't growing spiritually, if leaders aren't growing in their giftings, if leaders aren't growing in their understanding of the scripture, then the church is stalemated in that location. The church is a flock of sheep. It's compared to that over and over in scripture. And the basic meaning, the, the most preeminent characteristic there is that sheep are defenseless and sheep are prone to wander without their shepherd. This is the role of our spiritual leaders. Thank God for all of the pastors who are represented by the saints of God that are actually watching this video right now. You are responsible to pray for your pastor. Your pastor is such an important, key, critical voice in your spiritual life because he's responsible to feed the flock and the flock includes you. Peter then says, take the oversight Shepherds have this unique responsibility. They are to be among the sheep, but they are also to be above the sheep as a leader. So you could say it this way. They pastor the sheep, that's the caring role, and they preach, they lead the sheep. So they are among the sheep, and they are also, in a sense, above the sheep. And this can lead to some tensions and difficulties because some people... They only want the among relationship. 
They reject the authority of the shepherd. They don't listen when he teaches the church and says, this is what we need to do. They don't pay much attention when he calls prayer or when he calls fasting or, or when he teaches on lifestyle convictions and holiness. They don't pay much attention. All they want from that pastor is the among relationship. They want him to be their friend. They want to be able to fellowship with him. They want to be able to call him at any time and counsel with him. They want only the among relationship. But then there's another relationship that pastor's responsible for that we need to acknowledge and we need to affirm. He's supposed to be above the sheep. Now, there are people who only want the pastor to have the above relationship. They don't want him to be around their day-to-day -day lives. They don't want him to know what they're getting up to and what they're doing. And so they put their pastor, their shepherd, on a pedestal. And they turn him into kind of a super saint. And, and they don't even bother to pray for him because after all, he's the pastor. He doesn't have any problems or difficulties or circumstances or situations to deal with. And I can tell you that, that both extremes are damaging to a church. If you only look at your pastor as among the sheep and it's just a, a casual, friendly kind of relationship, or if you only look at your pastor as among the sheep, he's kind of a distant person that, that, that you know, you put him up on a pedestal. Both of those extremes are damaging to the church and they're also damaging to the leader. I will say that I'm so appreciative of our team here at CCC. And uh, I am still at this moment called the senior pastor. And that's not age, although age would work to qualify me for that in our team. I will tell you that it makes my heart rejoice when I see seasoned saints who refer to our younger pastors with a title of respect. I will tell you that I cringe and my Holy Ghost gets ready to jump up when I hear somebody refer to one of our younger pastors casually by their first name and they don't honor them with the title of pastor because those men, as well as me, they serve in leading the flock. They are among you. They work with you. You know them. They labor among you. They work with our groups in the church and they're around and they, they work so diligently and so hard and it's all too easy in this disrespectful generation to kind of just dumb it down and lower them down. But they also have a responsibility to lead out in front of the flock and above the flock, if you will. And it rejoices my heart when I see even some of our elders, even some of our senior saints give to those younger men on our team the same respect that you have afforded me. And I thank you for being that kind of a church because it's also their responsibility to take the oversight. And then Peter says, not only do you feed the flock and take the oversight, but he said, not by constraint. See, pastors serve the church not because they have to, but because they want to. They don't just have an occupation or a job. They have a calling from God into the ministry. If a man has no conscience and no work ethic, my goodness, the ministry would be a good place to be lazy because he basically sets his own schedule and his own priorities in many, many ways. But a true calling on a man or woman of God, it will demonstrate itself in their personal disciplines. It will demonstrate itself in the way they manage their time. It will demonstrate itself, a true calling, 
will show itself in leadership growth, in ministry accomplishments, and certainly in the preaching and the teaching that you observe from that man or woman of God. Again, it makes me so happy and thrilled when I hear comments about the men on our team that have grown up in many ways in their ministry here. And they're a little younger than me. But when I hear you say, what growth we've observed, what a powerful message that was. What a great job they're doing. That rejoices my heart because it's not one man leading this church. It's just like the New Testament. It's a leadership team. It's the elders that are among us. Peter said, so don't do it by constraint. Don't do it with a bad attitude or gritting your teeth or thinking I have to do this. No, you do that willingly. And then he said, here's something else. Not for filthy lucre. Now, scripture teaches that it is right. It's even commanded for a church to pay their leaders. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Timothy chapter 5. I won't take the time to go through all of those verses, but it's very clear that not only should the church reimburse their leaders for their work, but they should be as generous as possible. But on the leader's side, because Peter's not addressing so much the congregation here, he's addressing the elders that lead the congregation. On the elder's side, on the leader's side, making money must never be a motive for ministry. The term filthy lucre, filthy money, we would say dirty money, that's a phrase from our culture. That term filthy lucre carries a sense of greed or a love for money and materialism. You can see that in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Now, some pastors of smaller congregations, especially our wonderful, courageous church planters, they might need outside employment temporarily. After all, Paul was a tent maker to support his ministry for a time. So, so they might need outside employment temporarily. But let me caution every leader that might be watching this. That outside employment, outside the ministry, should only be to enable your ministry, never to just enrich your lifestyle. Because otherwise, that outside work, that outside compensation, becomes a distraction to your calling. And we have a responsibility to lead and feed the flock of God. And finally, Peter said, don't be a dictator. He says, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples and samples to the flock. So he said, don't you be a di dictator. Sheep cannot be driven. That's in their characteristic as an animal. The shepherd must walk before them and lead them. And so a shepherd, the, the biblical image is that a shepherd, a pastor, a leader, he leads best by his walk, not just by his talk. And it is by being an example that the shepherd resolves the tension I mentioned earlier. He has to be among the sheep and he has to be in a certain sense above the sheep to lead them. And the way that tension is resolved is by him being an example. Because people, saints of God, precious, precious Christians, believers, they are willing to follow a leader who practices what he preaches who walks his talk. And Peter says in verse four, he said, oh, by the way, 
when the chief shepherd shall appear, you, you leaders, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So pastors and leaders, we're to be responsible and accountable to the church, but ultimately we're responsible and accountable to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. At his coming, if leaders have fulfilled their ministry, they will receive their ultimate reward. But if they have not fulfilled their ministry, the Bible teaches us they will receive greater judgment. James said it this way, my brethren, be not many masters. Don't just take it upon yourself to be a teacher or a leader, knowing that leaders, teachers, they shall receive greater condemnation. In other words, greater judgment. Now that's a fearful thing. And it's why no one should enter the ministry as a profession, only as a calling. Unethical leaders, they choose to please themselves. And if they're unethical, they can use ministry as a platform for making money or as a platform for gaining influence or anything else. Unethical leaders choose to please themselves. Insecure leaders choose to please the people they're trying to lead. And they're always trying to run ministry and church by an opinion poll. What does everybody think? But godly leaders, they choose to please the Lord because he is the only one who can truly evaluate the success of their ministry. It's like what Jesus said when he was talking about the judgment in the end. His Lord said unto him, Matthew 25, 21, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Whether you're a saint of God, whether you're a leader in your local assembly, or whether you're a minister of the gospel, and you work at this as a full-time calling, let me say that the greatest compliment, the greatest reward, the greatest blessing and honor and privilege you will ever receive is not having a bunch of people acclaim your giftings or your ministry or your preaching or teaching or your leadership. The greatest reward is going to be two words when you stand before the Lord. Well done. That's what we work for. Now that's us, that's the church, that's how we operate, that's our spiritual structure. <clears throat> and for apostolic churches, that spiritual structure has remained largely unchanged for 2,000 years. We still honor our pastors, uh, bishops, elders, deacons. We may not use the same titles and we may not use the same terminology, but in the apostolic church today, there's a great high respect for the leaders that serve our congregations. But the world rebels against spiritual leadership of any kind. They say, why would you let a pastor tell you what to do? You can follow, here's the attitude today, you can follow Jesus all by yourself. You don't even have to belong to a church congregation and you certainly don't have to listen to a man. That's because the world has absolutely zero concept of submission. But submission is the glue that holds the church body together. And submission is the engine that makes any type of ministry possible. Now Peter's already admonished the saints to be submitted to authority. 
with all respect. We've seen that several places in this letter. He's already taught us. Citizens, you should be submitted to your government with all respect. Employees, you should be submitted to your employers with all respect. In his day, he would have said, and he did say, servants, you should be submitted to your masters with all respect. And he tells us all, wives, you should be submitted to your husbands in his leadership of the home with all respect. But now, he's going to teach on that submission one final time. And he's going to amplify it for everybody else in the local church. Even if you're not a government official, even if you're not an employer, even if you're not a, a, a master, even if you're not a husband. And on the flip side, even if you're not a citizen, even if you're not an employee, even if you're not a servant, even if you're not a wife, whichever side of that relationship you fall on, now he's going to say, but wait a minute, submission doesn't just apply to those few unique situations. Submission applies to everybody. In verse 5, he says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. So, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Peter says, younger believers, you should submit to older believers. Not only out of respect for their age and their contribution to the church over many years, but also out of respect for their spiritual maturity. Younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. And I will, again, a personal reference, it makes me so thrilled and so proud of our young people when I watch them interact with our elders. And they respect them. They honor them. I see them pray with them in the altar. And I see them show them deference in their conversation. And I'm so thrilled at that. And I'm so proud of our younger generation because that's biblical, that's apostolic. Younger, submit yourselves to the elders. Now I will pause and say this, and it's very important to say, not every senior saint is a mature Christian. Of course that's true. Because the quantity of years does not necessarily reflect the quality of their experience serving God. I've said it many times. Some people grow old, but they never grow up. So it's respecting elders who are spiritual, elders who are mature in the faith, not just people of advanced age. And my goodness, we are so blessed at CCC to have a large number of elders who are not only older chronologically, but they are mature saints that have given their lives to serve God and to serve his church. And we have a great church today because of their sacrifice yesterday. And we are so very grateful for that. Now, in the same way that elder doesn't necessarily mean mature, you can flip that coin. In the same way, young doesn't just refer to age either. He's referring to spiritual immaturity. Now, spiritual immaturity is not wrong or bad if you're a new believer. What he's saying here, it's not about age as much as it's about maturity. 
You new believers, submit yourselves to the mature believers. And I would say that to you. If you're a new member at CCC, if you're a new believer, a new convert to, to the gospel and to Jesus Christ, let me tell you something. The best favor you could ever do yourself is find someone who's ahead of you in this journey for God, someone who's a mature saint of God, and imitate those. Do what they do. Pray in the same sort of way that they pray. Watch their worship. Watch how they get to the altar. Watch their interaction with preaching and imitate them. You say, oh, isn't that wrong? No, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1, be ye followers of me even as I also am of Christ. He said, imitate me because if you serve Jesus like I serve Jesus, you're going to make it. If you serve Jesus like I serve Jesus, you're going to be a successful believer. So I'm not saying to you, just find somebody who's old. I'm saying find somebody who's mature, who serves God with distinction and with passion and with faithfulness and with commitment. And you will have done yourself the greatest favor in the world. Now this subject of submission, you could talk about it in a whole lot of different ways. But these are the two observations that I make every time I talk about submission in any setting. First of all, submission, just like submarine, has a very special, distinct meaning. Submarine means under the water. Submission means putting your mission, your preferences, under somebody else's mission. That is submission. Secondly, the second observation I always make in any setting when I need to talk about submission is this. You cannot fully submit until you disagree. Only when you disagree with your leader can you prove submission to your leader. Now, agreement is powerful. We know that from Scripture. Where two or three agree, we know that. But submission is even more powerful than agreement. You can only submit to someone when they do something that you don't prefer. And you prove by your cheerful, willing, loyal, faithful submission, you prove that you have a submitted heart. Now what makes the apostolic church so amazing is that it's unlike any other group, any other organization in the world. Because in the apostolic church, we all submit to each other. That means that one ministry can receive from another ministry. That means that one Christian can be in unity with other Christians even when we disagree, even when we do it differently, even when there's some kind of conflict or situation. Now, human ego makes that impossible. But Peter said, forget human ego. Humility makes it possible. Peter tells the church, you be clothed with humility. You see, Peter was there that night when Jesus laid aside his outer garments and he girded himself with a towel and he began to wash the disciples' feet. Peter was there. Peter saw that. Peter experienced that moment. And at first, he resisted. He said, oh, Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. I wouldn't, you're my leader, you're my Lord, you're my master. I would never have you wash my feet because he didn't understand what Jesus was teaching. 
But when he realized the importance of Jesus, the leader, the master, the teacher, when he realized the importance of the leader serving his own disciples, then Peter embraced the power of submission and humility that Jesus was teaching at that moment. He said, oh Lord, I get it now. Don't just wash my feet. Wash also my hands and my feet. Wash me all over, Jesus. Peter got it. That real leaders, spiritual leaders, they're humble. And they don't mind submitting to others as well. That attitude of putting others first, that is what true humility is all about. True humility will bless your marriage. True humility will bless your relationship with your children. True humility will bless every kind of relationship you have at work or in your extended family or even here at church or in society. True humility, it blesses any relationship. And the attitude of putting others first is what true humility is all about. True humility is not about demeaning yourself. It's not about putting yourself down. True humility is not thinking poorly of yourself. True humility is simply not thinking about yourself at all. You just think of others. You're not thinking about you. You know, there are people that are always putting themselves down and always talking negative about themselves and poor me and I'm not that good and I can't do that and I'm not as good as you. And that's actually pride talking. Because pride is this seeking of attention. And so whether you're exalting yourself or humiliating yourself, that's not true humility. That's actually pride in action, saying, look at me, feel sorry for me, talk about me, make me the center of attention. That's what that is. True humility just doesn't think about itself at all. It's too busy thinking about pleasing God and too busy thinking about others. Our example of true humility, of course, is Jesus. And Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, this is God we're talking about. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He laid aside his reputation. He emptied himself of all of his privileges. And then he took upon himself the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. He identified with everyone else. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. And he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What a long way down it was for Jesus to leave heaven and come to earth. It would have been a great condescension if he'd come to the most beautiful palace in the most wealthy city and had servants at his beck and call. That alone would have been a great condescension, a great lowering, a great humility. But he didn't come to a palace and he didn't have servants and he wasn't born into wealth. He came into this world in the form of a servant. He humbled himself. And Jesus, that attitude that Paul wrote about, that is our pattern when we talk about humility and being submitted to each other. Now, we can never be submitted to each other until we're first fully and truly submitted to God. 
Again, human ego makes true submission and true humility. Human ego makes that impossible. But true humility makes submission possible. The driving force behind human ego is pride. And humility is the opposite of pride. Peter tells us God resists proud people. But he gives grace to humble people. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we need humility because we need God's grace. We sure don't need God resisting our efforts. Being humble. You read it in Paul's writing. You read it in Peter's writing. Being humble is about yielding to God and to others. We choose to yield ourselves to God's will. Peter said, under the mighty hand of God. We're under his hand. We're under his direction. We're under his covering. So we choose to yield ourselves to God. And we trust that he will elevate us and vindicate us when his timing is right. Peter said, that he may exalt you in due time. Don't you fight for it now. You let God do it in his timing. So submission, here's something we learned from Peter's writing. Submission is really an act of faith. I submit to God and I trust him to direct my life and I trust him to work out his purposes in his time. So I'm trusting God. I'm having faith in him. Submission is really an act of faith. But also, when I submit to others, I'm trusting that they will not take advantage of me. Because I've submitted. That can be a little frightening. But if you have faith in God and in the principles of his word, you willingly submit yourselves to others in your family, in the church, in your relationships. You say, but what if they take advantage of me? What if they misuse my submission? Even if they do, God will ultimately elevate you and vindicate you if you don't push back and fight back, and talk back. See, that's submission. It's a big assignment. It's probably a lifelong renovation project in our spirit for many of us. But here's the good news. Peter said, in the meantime, while you're submitting to others, and while you're wondering how this is all going to turn out, and, and sometimes you feel like, well, somebody took advantage of me because I was submitted and I took the humble part. Here's what Peter says next. He said, oh, don't worry about that. You cast all your care upon him, for he careth for you. When your circumstances become difficult, boy, it can become easy to feel anxious and angry and worried and depressed, even fearful. The Greek word here, when it talks about uh, care, it means to be pulled apart. And we certainly see that today. People are pulled apart by worry and fear, anxiety, depression, all kinds of things. Pulled apart by anger. Even homes and marriages pulled apart by some of these negative emotions and feelings. Those are our cares. But Peter said, when you're a child of God, it doesn't matter what's going on in your circumstance. You can cast all your care, all the ways in which you feel pulled apart. You can cast all those cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. That's one of the benefits of being submitted to God. When I'm submitted to God, it puts me firmly in his hand. And Peter said, under his mighty hand. So I can cast all my care on him. Now the tense of the verb in that verse, 
casting. The tense of the verb means that we once and for all give all our cares to the Lord. You can check that out in the amplified version of the scripture. It's very clear. You can check it out by studying the original Greek word. It's very clear. We must once and for all cast all our cares on the Lord. Past, present, and future cares. What are you saying, Peter? Here's what he's saying. We don't just give our problems to God piecemeal, a little bit at a time. Well, God, I'm going to give you this care, but I think I can handle this by myself. I think I'm going to give you this worry, but I can handle these ones by myself. That's how a lot of people do it. They keep the cares they think they're doing okay with. But that's not how apostolic believers do it when they go to prayer. Because we understand that those little cares can very quickly spin out of control and become big problems. So we cast all our cares on him. Past, present, and future. We give everything to Jesus. God already cares about everything that you're praying for. But he's simply waiting for you to talk to him about it. When you care enough about it to give God those cares and to talk to him about those cares, that's when he goes to work. Cast all your cares. I pause to say to somebody that's watching tonight, I pause to say to you, that's what you need to do. You've given God little things. You've prayed about certain situations. But you've retained in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit. You've retained so many issues and problems. So many worries and fears. You've maintained them in your mind. Tonight I would encourage you to cast all your cares. Once and for all. Just say, Jesus, I am not picking this back up again. Jesus, I refuse to take this back into my spirit, to take this back into my mind and to start fretting about it all over again. Jesus, I cast all my cares once and for all on you because I know you care for me. Now, why do we have cares in the first place in life? Well, it's because we have an enemy. Here's what Peter says next. Be sober. Be vigilant, because in this life, your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, he walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. He said, you resist him steadfast in the faith, and you know this, know that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. One reason we have cares is because we have an enemy. The word devil means accuser. The word Satan means adversary. So in the scripture, our enemy is pictured as both a deceiving serpent and a devouring lion. He's a subtle foe. He accuses us in order to bring adversity into our lives. And he deceives us in order to devour our lives. And so Peter said, don't let your guard down as you're living this life for God. We need to be sober. That means self-controlled, discreet, sober-minded, intentional. Be intentional about your Christianity. Be intentional about, intentional about living for God. Be intentional about prayer and getting yourself into the Word of God. Be intentional about fellowshipping with fellow believers and being in church. Be intentional. Be sober. And he said, also, you need to be vigilant. That means to be awake, to be watchful. 
It means to be roused from sitting or sleeping. If you've slacked off, if you've kind of grown cold, if you've backslidden a little, you need to wake up and be vigilant because you've got an enemy and he wants to pile your life full of cares and he wants to ruin your relationship with Jesus Christ and his church. So be sober and be vigilant. And you've got to do that if you're going to defeat him. So we need to recognize the devil. And we need to resist the devil. We need to see where he's working. And then we need to apply pressure and resist that. You can't trust the devil. You can't take him at his word. John 8.44 says the devil is a liar and he's the father of it. He's the father of a lie. One translation said that lying is his native tongue. When the devil lies, he's just speaking his native tongue. So don't let the devil whisper in your ear all the time because the devil loves to get the children of God worrying. The devil loves to get the children of God depressed about something. The devil loves to get the children of God angry at somebody. He'll, he's merciless. He'll try to get those feelings in your mind, in your home, in the church, at your work, with your kids, with your spouse. He's merciless. He's evil. He is a liar. So you need to be sober and be vigilant in order to resist him. Remember, the devil, he doesn't have the final say over your life. He does not control you. He is not the boss of you. Jesus has the final say over my life. Jesus is in control of my life and Jesus is the boss of me. So take comfort, Peter said, in the fact it's not just you. If you're feeling the pressure, if you're feeling the attacks, if the devil seems to be on your case and on your trail, he said, take comfort in the fact that every Christian, he said, the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. He said, every Christian goes through these kind of attacks. Every Christian goes through these kind of pressures. It's the same kind of attacks, same kind of afflictions. All of the New Testament writers talk about this, that if you serve Jesus, you will still have problems. If you serve Jesus, you will still have pressures. But the great difference is you can take all those problems and all those pressures and you can cast them all on the shoulders of Jesus because he cares for you. Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. Watch, that you may be able to stand against the wiles, against the tactics and the lies and the strategies of the devil. James says it in James 4 verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. You resist the devil and he will flee from you. All of the New Testament writers talk about this battle. All of the New Testament writers say the enemy is going to attack you. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. You don't have to take what the devil is trying to put on your life. Now Peter, he begins to come to a close in his epistle. What a journey it's been. We've learned so much. And I know that these people were so thrilled to get his communication. These letters, these epistles were what tied them together with their brothers and sisters all around Asia Minor and far beyond. Here's how Peter begins to close his letter. Verse 10, but the God of all grace, huh, who has called us 
unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. He said, here's what I'm praying for you, church. After you have suffered a little while, that that God of all grace, that God who's called us into his eternal glory, after you've suffered a little while, I'm praying that he'll make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We can always have confidence in our lives that God knows exactly what he is doing. We can always be assured that God remains in complete control. So no matter how difficult our fiery trial may become, we can always have hope. That's what Peter tells us. We can always have hope. No matter what unfolds, we can always have hope. After all, God gives us grace. Grace is his enabling power. And that grace allows us to walk through every circumstance of life. But even more than having power to get through, Peter said, don't forget, we're headed to eternal glory. One glorious moment in heaven looking at Jesus and the saints of all the ages and the angels. One moment in heaven will be far more than a recompense or a reward for every difficult moment you've ever encountered or experienced here on earth. I know I'm, I'm preaching to people right now that your road right now, your personal life, your situation, your circumstance right now, it feels really rough. It's like you're on this horrible rough road. But that road leads to heaven no matter how rough it is right now. You're on the right road. It leads to heaven. And that is all that really counts in our lives. It is good to know that in God's kingdom and in God's plan, our suffering has a purpose, even though we can't always see it. Every human being on this planet goes through difficult situations. But for the children of God, it's different. Paul said in Romans, we know that all things work together for good. It's hard to see sometimes. But what Paul and Peter and all the rest of the New Testament writers are telling us even when our experiences are bad, the effects of those experiences in our lives are good because God's in charge and God can work it all for our good. Peter said, here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that God will make you perfect. That means to equip the people of God, to mend them, to bind up their wounds and bruises and to mature them. He said, I'm praying that this great God, this God of grace, I'm praying that he makes you perfect, that he adjusts you and fits you together and keeps you together, that he mends you. I'm praying that for you. He said, I'm praying that God establishes you. He said, I'm praying that God fixes you firmly and turns your life resolutely and that he makes you steady. There's a wonderful value to consistency. Not up one day and down the next, in one day and out the next. But Peter said, I'm praying that God establishes you. He establishes you. He fits you firmly in the kingdom. And he turns your face like a flint to serve God so that nothing can deter you. He said, I'm praying that God establishes you. He said, I'm also praying that God strengthens you. That he holds you up. When you feel like I can't do it one more day. I can't get through one more hour of this. He said, I'm praying that God strengthens you, that he holds you up, that he stands.
stands by you and you feel his peace and you feel his power and you feel his grace and you feel his presence. I'm praying that God strengthens you, that he confirms what you're going through and shows you that there's something greater going on than just your pain or just your hurt or just your loss. And he said, finally, church, I'm praying that God settles you. I'm praying that he grounds you, that he consolidates the things in your life and lays a firm foundation that can never be shaken. But also, settle you has the same significance as what we would say about our kids when they're little. We put them in their crib and we tiptoe out of the room and we say, they're settled down. They're sleeping now. Peter said, I'm praying that God settles you. I'm praying that in the midst of your storm and in the midst of the worst things you can imagine, in the midst of the attacks of the devil and the fiery trials put upon the church by the world, I am praying that God settles you, that you walk through that storm with peace, that you walk through that trial with calm, that you walk through that persecution with assurance that my God of great grace, my God who has called me to a land that is fairer than day where his glory is the only thing that matters. Peter said, I'm praying that that God just settles you so you can walk with that peace. And then best of all, he said, oh, by the way, he said, after you have suffered a while, he said, best of all, you can know that your suffering, whatever it is, however bad it is, however horrible and painful it is, however unfair it may be in your life right now, your suffering, child of God, is only for a while. Trials don't last forever. Pain doesn't last forever. Tears don't last forever. Battles don't last forever. But let me tell you, your salvation lasts forever. Your Holy Ghost lasts forever. The blood of Jesus lasts forever. Temporary troubles will someday result in an eternal reward. That's God's promise for you. In a little while, it'll all be over. In a little while, you're going to be rewarded. In a little while, you're going to be with Jesus forever. Boy, that makes you feel like you can take that next step and live one more day and get through one more trial. Paul said it this way, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Oh, it seems so long right now. Seems like it goes on forever, but in light of eternity, it's just for a moment. And furthermore, that affliction you go through that seems so heavy, really in light of eternity, it's really a light affliction. Oh, I know it's crushing right now. But when you get to heaven and you see the reward God has for you, you'll look back and say, oh, that was just a light affliction. It was just a momentary affliction. He said, it works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's so heavy right now, pastor. I know, but when you get to heaven, God is going to load you down with the rewards of his kingdom. And your faithfulness is going to be worth it. Your prayer is going to be worth it. Your service to the master, Jesus Christ, is going to be worth it. Peter closes his letter as many of the New Testament writers do. He closes with some personal greetings from his co-workers that are with him, Silas and Mark. And he mentions 
uh, I'm writing this from Babylon. The church that is at Babylon salutes you. He said, I'm writing from Babylon. Well, that's code word for the sinful city of Rome where he was ministering just before his death. Peter met his death in the city of Rome. Probably not too many months, certainly not many years, if that, from this moment. So he said, Silas, a faithful brother, uh, he writes and he, he testifies right along with me that this is the true grace of God that you're standing in. And, 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 and the church here at Babylon in Rome, the sinful head of the empire, just like Babylon used to be, he said, the church here, right under the nose of Caesar, right under the nose of the Roman Empire, we got an apostolic church here. Paul said the same thing. He, said, he sent greetings from those that were of Caesar's household. In the worst, corrupt, unimaginable environment, there was an apostolic church in the first century. And Peter said, the church at Babylon, the church in the sin-cursed, sinful, evil, pagan, hate-filled Center of the universe, the Roman Empire, the church that's right here in Rome. We salute you, and Mark does too. He's my son in the gospel. And he closes with words that are strange to us in modern days. He said, greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. A kiss of charity or a holy kiss, which it's called, I think, four other times in the New Testament, it was a usual greeting in those cultures. It still is in cultures today. When the men greet the men with a kiss on the cheek and the ladies do as well, that was normal in their culture. It's normal in many modern cultures. While it's a little strange for us in North America, for those Christians, it was a normal, affectionate greeting. And that's the significance. Whatever your greeting is to your brothers and sisters, it might not be a kiss of charity. Right now, they tell us it shouldn't even be a handshake. But what it's really referring to is not the physical action. It's referring to pure affection. Whatever your greeting is, when you see your brothers and sisters, your pastors and leaders, the saints of God, it should be a greeting of pure affection. It should be a greeting of welcome, a greeting of grace. A greeting of thanks, a greeting of love. It's a greeting of pure affection. And Peter concludes his letter. And we conclude this series by praying for everybody to have God's peace. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. No matter what's happening in our world, no matter what the devil or the culture, or a viral pandemic is doing, no matter what kind of pandemonium has been unleashed on the outside, Peter's prayer for them and my prayer for you is that the peace of God that passes all understanding would abide around you. That you'd be able to get through your daily trials and the trials and situations that are part of our world right now for many people, they're so frightening, they're so scary, they're so disconcerting and unnerving. And anxiety and worry and panic even has filled our cultures around the world. But in the middle of that, walk the people of God with a firm confidence in, in the Lord. And my prayer for you, and I'll pray it right now. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the precious believers, my brothers and sisters that have been part of this series and part of this Bible study tonight. 
And I pray in Jesus' name, like Peter prayed 2,000 years ago, that your peace would invade their home where they are right now. That your peace would invade their marriage and diffuse conflicts and pressures and tensions. That your peace would invade their family with their children, siblings, parents together. Lord Jesus, that your peace would guard and cover the church of God in this time. It's a worrisome time and a fearful time. We don't even know what tomorrow holds. But the reality from your word is we never did know what tomorrow held for us. It's always in your hand. It's still in your hand. So I pray with Peter, let your peace cover and be round about, carry and uphold the people of God, whatever they may be going through today. And I pray it like he did and like Paul did and like James did and like John did and all the rest. I pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you tonight. Thank you so much for being part of Bible study.